Hello, hello, and welcome to Gears of Progress, a perfect place to learn about research and rehab engineering and assistive tech. I'm your host, Sasha, a postdoc at the University of Washington, and this is episode number four. Today in uh, my, not my studio anymore, this is, uh, we are in a different place. Uh, we are meeting with the expert on everything neuro, uh, the expert on neuroplasticity, neuro rehabilitation, and neuromechanics, Dr. Fatma Inanishi. Um, she is uh, going to be a professor at the Department of uh, Rehab Medicine at the University of Washington. And uh, I'm super excited to talk to you about all the fun stuff you've been doing in the past. Thank you so much having me. Um, so I really like starting with kind of far back the story of how you got to where you are now. Um, I did some research on you, obviously, and you were a professor at a uh, university in Turkey. Yes. How did you get there? <laughs> and uh, what made you come here and do such a wild turn? Yeah, sure. Um, yes, uh, I am trained as a physician in Turkey, uh, in Hacettepe University. And uh, I worked as a clinician and academician in that institution almost 20 years. Uh, but as a, a physiatrist rehabilitation specialist, um, we are working with uh, neurological disorders and the treatment of neurological disorders, rehabilitation of re uh, neurological disorders, um, we do not reverse paralysis, for example. Mm -hmm. There is a limit uh, to treat our patients. Uh, there is something missing in the science, how we can reverse paralysis. Mm -hmm. This is one of the biggest challenges of neuroscience, actually. Mm -hmm. So uh, I decided to do a formal education for research, although I did many research during my academic uh, career. Uh, I decided to get a formal education for research, and I moved to U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, to do my Ph.D. in rehabilitation sciences. I see. Uh, I completed it in 2019 uh, and still working to push boundaries for the patients who have limited rehabilitation or treatment opportunities yeah. after getting neurological problems. I see. So you uh, you did mention you did a lot of research even before getting the research, right? The official research education. Uh -huh. Your research, from what I could see on Google Scholar, was a lot of fibromyalgia research. Yes. How did you? That's that's a wild turn from fibromyalgia to treating paralysis. Um, mm -hmm. How did you decide on that? So at the beginning of my career, I am really interested in treating pain. Mm -hmm. uh, pain is also kind of, uh, fibromyalgia is also kind of a neurological problem. Okay. Uh, pain is neurological problem. Uh, 
but at the same time, I did lots of, uh, I treated lots of patients with uh, paralysis for neurological disorders. Uh, then I uh, decided uh, to focus on this group, uh, although I did not publish uh, I, I published uh, in neurological problem uh, research during my academic career in Turkey, but mm -hmm. it was not uh, too much in number. Uh, but I always interested in this group of patients. So uh, I decided to do research for this group. I see. Um, I saw in the description of what you do at the Center of Neurotech at UW, uh, you do what's called experimental neuroscience. Uh, can mm -hmm. you describe it in simpler terms, um, what that means? Of course, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, experimental neuroscience means to develop uh, new approaches, new treatment options for uh, patients to experiment uh, new uh, neurotechnology, neural engineering devices uh, to um, yeah to treat patients that they do not have that kind of approach before. Mm -hmm. These are in innovative uh, approaches, new novel approaches. That's why it's called experimental. Mm -hmm. We don't know the results. Uh, we are, uh, of course, getting some results from preclinical studies, mm -hmm. animal studies, but uh, these are not tested on human beings. Mm -hmm. uh, we are experimenting them based on uh, preclinical research I results. I see. That's pretty cool. So uh, one of the cool stuff that you are working on in uh, experimental neuroscience is the spinal stimulation. Mm -hmm. uh, we already got to chat with uh, Charlotte about the spinal stem for lower limb. Uh, is it, you're focusing obviously on hand and arm mobility. Is there any difference to uh, how it's being studied for uh, lower limb? Um, can you tell us a bit more <laughs> mm -hmm. about your upper uh, upper limb space? Okay, uh, spinal cord stimulation actually uh, was a treatment option for intractable pain in 1970s. Uh, started in 1970s, and uh, when epidural stimulation electrodes are implanted to patients with spinal cord injury or multiple sclerosis, some kind of neurological problems, uh, the physicians observed that there are some improvement in motor function and spasticity as well mm -hmm. in those days. But Spasticity this, being? <laughs> spasticity well. is high muscle tone yes. uh, developed after central nervous system injuries. Uh, however, these results did not uh, get too many attention at those days, mm -hmm. maybe because of the um, technical problems with the electrodes implanted uh, on the spinal cord mm -hmm. for pain. Uh, so uh, until 2010, around 2010, 
uh, it did not get any attention. Mm -hmm. But it's known almost 40 years. It's very interesting. Uh, in 2010, 2011, it has been shown that uh, spinal cord stimulation, but the invasive mm -hmm. epidural stimulation, uh, improved uh, lower extremity function. I mean, walking. Mm -hmm. We call it locomotor function. Mm -hmm. uh, so that uh, lots of people get really excited about it because it was a new and very exciting uh, study. Mm -hmm. uh, results were amazing. Uh, lots of people are working on walking with epidural stimulation. Mm -hmm. However, we know that uh, for tetraplegic group, I mean neck level spinal cord mm -hmm. injury, uh, these people have tetraplegia, which means that both lower and upper limbs are affected, mm -hmm. and these people cannot use their hands. And tetraplegic population in spinal cord injury group is more than uh, 50%, around 60% of the patients have tetraplegia. And these patients prioritize upper extremity mm -hmm. function because upper extremity function is really a most important function for daily living activities. Mm -hmm. uh, but as I told, everybody is, lots of people, not everybody, is interested in locomotor function. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a big science gap in upper extremity function restoration, restoration of function in the upper extremities. So I especially uh, decided to focus on this uh, because I have that experience from mm -hmm. my patients. They always uh, want to get better hand and arm function. Uh, for that reason, uh, I decided to work on the upper extremity functions. Uh, it's interesting that uh, upper extremity functions are more complicated in terms of neuromechanics. Well, because hands walking, are complicated, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, walking is a reciprocal mm -hmm. movement. It's the same movement again and again. Very cyclical, yes. Yes. Uh, but hand and arm function is really complex. Uh, maybe that's why lots of people did not uh, focus at the beginning uh, for hand and arm function. Uh, so we decided to try non-invasive stimulation mm -hmm. uh, to improve function. And we know that uh, functional restoration is not possible with only one approach. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that the rehabilitation approaches, occupational therapy, has a limit to improve or to get back the uh, upper extremity function. That's what you That's call the plateauing, one. right? Yes. So we decided to add non-invasive spinal cord stimulation mm -hmm. during rehabilitation approaches. This is a, a combination of therapy. Mm -hmm. And we get really very exciting, very good results. Uh, we're still trying to understand better. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, the results are really amazing and so exciting. Do you want to share them? Because I, I only there are videos out there, but for those of, of us course. that are just listening. Uh -huh. So uh, uh, 
There are many, many different uh, improvements in our participants. Uh, of course, I will first focus on hand and arm function. One of our participants, for example, uh, was playing guitar before his injury 12 years ago. Uh, after the injury, he tried several times to play the guitar, but because of he was tetraplegic, mm -hmm. he couldn't do it, and he really feel, felt frustrated about it. Uh, so he stopped trying it. After our, not after, during our study, yeah. uh, when he was getting uh, spinal cord stimulation, non-invasive spinal cord stimulation in our study, he decided to try playing guitar one more time, and uh, he was successful. He, the more he tried, the more he practiced, uh, he, the more he got better. Okay. Now yeah. he is playing guitar once a week with his old team uh, band. Wow. I mean, uh, so. This is really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. this is really exciting. I'm so happy to see that results absolutely. to out to uh, this outcome. Uh, another participant uh, enrolled in our study was living uh, with her friend uh, because he needed lots of help in daily living. Mm -hmm. He also had another caregiver uh, seven days a week. Mm -hmm. But after we started stimulation, his hand functions improved progressively, and uh, he had her own house. He started living alone. He started doing paintings. Wow. And yeah. then, uh, now, he, uh, she married and she has twin boys. <laughs> Congratulations to that participant. Yes, <laughs> awesome. so this is another exciting outcome of our study. It's very great. So from what I am hearing, um, and I heard this from uh, Charlotte about spinal stimulation for lower extremities, the results are still very, there's a big spread of what you see, right? It's not kind of one size fits all and uh, you plug it in and everyone gets the same outcome. Do you, is, is that what you're trying to understand? How, what exactly is being impacted and why you see well, some types of improvements in uh, some patients and other patients see Absolutely. something different? Absolutely. So uh, one of the things that we are trying to understand now uh, as you said, this uh, treatment doesn't fit everyone. It's not a good fit for everyone. So we are trying to understand who are responders, who mm -hmm. are less responders or non-responders, because we don't know the exact mechanism. Of course, we can um, say that we can understand some of the effects of spinal cord stimulation, but the exact mechanism is still unknown. We need to uh, uncover it. We are also trying to understand better what's going on when we stimulate the spinal cord. Uh, what is the immediate effect? But Im more important than that, what is the long-term effect? Because yeah. we are focusing on neuroplasticity. Uh, we are not focusing on 
uh, neuroprosthetic effect of stimulation, yeah. as uh, in, not immediate effect yes. of stimulation. Okay. As in something that they would have to be almost constantly having to apply, uh-huh. right? Versus mm-hmm. something that helps them um, improve the motor function long-term, but without the yes. constant use of it. Okay. Yes, that's that's what... Uh, that's the uh, ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, long-term improvements, uh, m- maintaining the gaze, gains are the most important thing for the people who have paralysis. Yeah. Uh, what we observed during our studies are uh, some of participants really responded immediately. As soon as we turned on the stimulation, their function uh, improved immediately. We yeah. saw the uh, results at the uh, first minute or first yeah. second of stimulation. Uh, but this is not the case for everybody. Uh, most of the participants improved progressively. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we continued stimulation, their uh, function restored progressively. Uh, so, yeah, we are trying to understand who can get immediate response, who can get progressive and long-term response. Uh, These are the uh, future research or uh, the research that we are doing now. We are trying to understand these kind of uh, responses and uh, effect mechanism of spinal cord stimulation. And that's where you're putting your neuroscientist hat. Yes. A really big one, obviously. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Um, Since we touched on the neuroplasticity, so far, what have you seen in terms of how long do the effects last? Uh, The longest follow-up with our participants was six months. Mm -hmm. uh, And most of the gains sustained at the end of six months with... uh, at least two participants. Okay. The other participants we followed up three months, mm-hmm. and only one participant we saw after one year mm-hmm. uh, and tested uh, the outcome measures yeah. after one year. But with the other participants, some of some other participants, uh, we are still in contact. Although we do not do the uh, quantitative yeah. assessment. Uh, they still report that their improvements are uh, maintained. Uh, even if they, uh, for example, the person that playing guitar, mm-hmm. if they continue practicing, yeah. they get better and better, uh, which is amazing. That's great. Uh, just, just out of curiosity, um, the people that maintained uh, the results the longest, are those the ones who were the fast responders nope uh, no that even doesn't okay yes (laughs) no correlation there yes no correlation (laughs) and i also can say that uh less severe impairments we say asia c and d category spinal Mm -hmm. cord injuries which are less severe Mm -hmm. which are incomplete injuries respond better okay uh probably uh complete injuries require longer treatments mm-hmm. uh, 
because there are publications, a few publications, showing that even most severe injuries can get benefit from this kind of treatment, but may take longer times, longer uh, yeah. treatment times. I see. Um, your research team that you work with, um, is it very diverse or is it just full of clinicians uh, doing very clinical work? <laughs> uh, it is uh, definitely very diverse. Uh, the team uh, includes engineers, for sure. <laughs> uh, physicians, uh, therapists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, uh, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers. Uh, yeah, it's a very diverse yeah. team. What has it been like working on such a diverse team on a such clinical project? Mm -hmm. This is amazing. This was my dream, <laughs> actually, when true. I'm coming to <laughs> US to do research because uh, not only one discipline can treat uh, very complex problems. Uh, we need technical support. Uh, we need engineered devices. Uh, we need uh, devoted therapists. Uh, of course, we need to understand the pathophysiology of the problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, so when these expertise come together with the multidisciplinary team, the results are always better. Yeah, that's great. Um, we all, <laughs> I'm going to take a step back and um, uh, kind of be the devil's advocate here. We tend to always praise the, you know, how great diverse teams are. And I personally know them out of my experience. It's... Uh, the what comes out of them is really something incredible. But there are difficulties that are associated with working in a di in such a diverse background environment. What have been the difficulties uh, that you might have experienced? Uh, or are there any? Of course, there are some difficulties because uh, we need to understand each other. Uh, sometimes uh, it is not possible and uh, requires more time together to discuss the problems, uh, to understand each other, the limitations of each discipline. Mm -hmm. uh, these are the some difficulties, but, but still, this is something great. This is something needed uh, development of science, especially in medical sciences. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I felt like, you know, it's the talking different language is the, the hardest part of it all. Yes. You know, <laughs> me throwing my engineering terms and then the clinicians throwing their terms yes. and we're just looking at each other like, what did you say? <laughs> um, yes. Um, uh in such a strict research setup, because we, again, we're talking about very clinical research, trying to minimize all the uh, external um, effects uh, to really pinpoint at, um, like, for example, your question, what are the pathways for, for improvement? 
how often do you personally find yourself like in the middle of the experiment and you you realize that you need to adjust <laughs> your very strict protocol uh, to accommodate for these the human side of <laughs> of doing research, right? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, clinical research that has that kind of problems, that kind of difficulties, actually. Uh, but working with spinal cord injured population has uh, plus difficulties in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, because spinal cord injury is a very heterogeneous group of neurological disorders. Even the same uh, level and same Asia category participants are not the same. So we started, for example, uh, with the same protocol to enroll participants with uh, Asia B, C, and D. Mm-hmm. But we saw that, uh, meanwhile, uh, during that treatments, during that experiments, uh, we saw that this one protocol doesn't fit everyone. So we need to change, we needed to change our protocol. Uh, the most difficult thing in that protocol modification is uh, we are limited to our sponsors. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, needed. So we don't have that flexibility. Mm-hmm when we are modifying the protocols. Uh, This is one of the most important things, I think. Uh, How many times did you have to modify the protocol (laughs) for the spinal cord injury study? uh, For the first study that I did, uh, we did three times of uh, three modifications Modifications. uh uh, during four or five years study. Wow. So these are long studies. Long-term studies. Uh, long-term yeah. studies. Uh, yeah, this is one of the other challenge, challenges working with this group of patients. I see. Um, so we talk a lot about the application of spinal stimulation for uh, people with spinal cord injury. Is there any, uh, are there any other uh, populations, groups of people that you see spinal stimulation? Mm-hmm would be very applicable for? Uh, We learned a lot from spinal cord injured population. Uh, So uh, right now we just started to work with stroke population, Mm -hmm. stroke survivors. Uh, Completely different neurological disorders, Mm -hmm. uh, but there are some similarities in terms of uh, descending pathways from brain to spinal cord, then to the muscles. Mm-hmm. Uh, although the damage is not uh, in the spinal cord with stroke population, still they have some descending pathway damage. I see. So uh, we decided to include this group of patients to our studies as well. We just started. We don't okay. know the results. But uh, with two participants uh, with epidural invasive stimulation, mm-hmm. uh, there is some promising results published in the literature. Awesome. So we are hopeful, but the results are, are not there yet. Yeah. Uh, 
The other uh, important effect of spinal cord stimulation, uh, looking at the historical papers and the recent papers, uh, it may reduce the high muscle tone, which is a in very important problem after central nervous system uh, diseases. Uh-huh. Uh, we decided to include patients with multiple sclerosis to reduce spasticity in that group. Uh, we didn't start that study yet. Okay. Uh, we so are what? planning it. So but I believe that lots of uh, different neurological problems may benefit from this kind of treatment. As you mentioned uh, about Charlotte, mm-hmm. uh, they are working on cerebral palsy mm-hmm. groups. Yeah. Um, every time I'm in the lab <laughs> around your space, I see a lot of, uh, patients coming in to try to, uh, figure out if they're a good fit. Do you feel like, I don't, I'm just assuming you get a very big influx of people interested in participating. Do you feel like it has to do with the non-invasiveness of the procedure? Are people more Absolutely. excited lots to of, try? Mm-hmm. Lots of, uh, individuals with spinal cord injury especially, mm-hmm. uh, and stroke patients as well, mm-hmm. strong. Uh, they, they really like that they will not get any surgery. It's easy to, it's simple to apply non-invasive spinal cord stimulation. We call it transcutaneous stimulation, which means that over the skin stimulation. Uh, they really prefer that kind of non-invasive treatment. Uh, we also know that sur- surgical uh, implantation of the electrodes uh, to apply epidural stimulation mm-hmm. uh, may some benefits, I will say, but uh, also the complication risk is considerable. Yeah. Uh, there are different kind of complications that uh, arises from surgery, mm-hmm. um, hardware malfunction, uh, yeah, yeah, these kind of things, uh, battery change. There are lots yeah. of uh, complications or difficulties with implanted stimulation. Yeah, I'm. That's why I'm. I'm extra excited about this uh, research with non-invasive spinal stem. I'm really. I'm really excited about non-invasive procedures, and um, I know there are limitations to them as well. Uh, you know, for example, when we talk about even recording muscle signal from not non-invasively, it's very different from if you mm-hmm. were to go into the muscle. And um, from the engineering side, there's a huge difference in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we can make it work uh, without having to you know, invade the uh-huh. uh, people's bodies. Um, uh-huh. It's, yeah, it would be a great breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also reading on some of the other positive effects uh, beyond hand function of mm-hmm. spinal stimulation. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit of, about that? Yes, of course. This is also so amazing. Uh, and product, I will say, yeah. uh, that our... Uh, experimental study uh, we focused on as you said hand and arm function mm-hmm. but during our uh, experimental treatment we observed that uh, our participants bladder bowel 
and cardiovascular functions are also improved. Let me explain uh, why it is important. Uh, after spinal cord injury, people cannot move their hands and arms and legs. They cannot walk. This is the visible paralysis. Mm -hmm. But there is also uh, other problems that we cannot see, like cardiovascular dysfunction, mm -hmm. like uh, bladder problems, uh, bowel problems, there are all uh, organs are affected by spinal cord injury. Mm -hmm. uh, we call this uh, autonomic problems, mm -hmm. autonomic or organ problems. Uh, and lots of people suffer from uh, these problems uh, as well, especially high level injuries. Uh, affect all the internal organ systems. Mm -hmm. uh, after spinal cord injury, people cannot void voluntarily, mm -hmm. cannot uh, empty their bladder bowel voluntarily. They may have uh, hypotension, they may have hypertension. Mm -hmm. uh, so these kind of problems. When we started stimulation, one of our participants mentioned that uh, he has low heart rate, mm -hmm. which we call bradycardia. Uh, that made him almost faint or dizziness mm -hmm. in the morning. Uh, but after we started stimulation, his heart rate uh, came to normal. And still mm -hmm. it is normal. Wow. Uh, we stimulated him uh, eight weeks, mm -hmm. three times per week. Uh, now it's more than three years we work with him and his heart rate is still normal. That's a very long-term uh, retainment yeah. of effects. That's great. <laughs> uh, that's what he reported. And another participant uh, needed catheterization mm -hmm. to empty his bladder. Mm -hmm. Now he can... Uh, empty his bladder voluntarily. He can control his bladder emptying voluntarily. This is also amazing because catheterization is uh, not only difficult doing it daily, mm -hmm. it also uh, causes infections, mm -hmm. uh, ur urinary tract infections, yeah. and he is uh, infection-free yeah. for at least two years right now. This is great. That's also amazing. Uh, at least half of our participants mentioned about uh, their bubble pro program uh, is better than before when we were doing stimulation. Uh, the, spent, uh, the time they spent for emptying their bowels uh, reduced almost half uh, of the time. So these are really great improvements <laughs> this is really great i feel like in research you don't get to um in the protocol right you went into study hand function and the effects of spinal stimulation and you get such a big byproduct Absolutely. Um, of it how do you as a researcher what do you like it's not part of your protocol obviously right this is just kind of self-reported uh, mm -hmm. your participants observations do you do anything with this information? Is there like, I <laughs> you uh, 
publish on it or like you uh, report it in your publications while you're still talking about the hand uh do you uh so that potentially maybe you can encourage other labs that do uh, focus mm-hmm. on these functions mm-hmm. too. uh definitely we mentioned them in our publications mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we know that that many groups are working on autonomic function improvement mm-hmm. using spinal cord awesome. stimulation. Uh, and also one of our colleagues here uh, is also working on it. Uh, so Great. yeah, this is an ongoing research on lots of different aspects of spinal cord injury is getting benefit from uh, spinal cord stimulation and lots of groups are working to understand better, to uh, optimize the stimulation parameters Mm -hmm. uh, for different functions, different kind of problems. So there is a huge amount of uh, three uh, experiments or trials are ongoing right now. That was great. That's exciting. Um, are there any plans or have you worked on anything um, other exciting besides uh, spinal stimulation for a hand? Or what are your, like, your nearest future uh-huh. plans? Uh, as I uh, mentioned before, <laughs> only one treatment approach is not enough Mm -hmm. to reverse paralysis. Uh, So we need to combine uh, other treatments such as pharmacological agents may help improvement Mm -hmm. or uh, may uh, get better neuroplasticity if we combine with uh, transcutaneous spinal cord stimulation. Mm plus, of course, uh, rehabilitation approaches. Mm -hmm. So the the next thing I would like to test these combinatorial treatments or combinational treatments. Uh, Yeah, this is one of the things. We can also benefit from uh, robotic uh, rehab. Mm -hmm. uh, this may give more effective movement practices. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the most uh, <clears throat> important thing that I can see is that combination of the treatments, several tre- treatments, mm-hmm. uh, to understand if they have synergistic effects, mm-hmm. uh, if the outcomes are better than to one or two treatment approaches. I see. Okay. Um, you mentioned including, um, uh, kind of robotic devices or this is something we discussed with Charlotte as well. They're trying, you know, uh, pairing it with exoskeletons mm-hmm. for the lower limb. What are the options for upper limb these days? <laughs> Cause I feel like, again, this is such a, uh, unexplored territory, mm-hmm. especially when we talk about the whole field of rehab engineering. Um, most of the conferences you go to, uh, a bigger portion is going to be on mm-hmm. lower limb and just uh, <laughs> very mm-hmm. tiny, like the hand folks <laughs> doing <Yes>. hand research. <laughs> uh, there are uh, several robotic devices mm-hmm. uh, that can help upper extremity movements. Uh, still, they are not enough, I think, they are good enough, but we can get help to do some passive 
moments or uh, uh, let me help as needed kind of robotic okay. devices uh -huh. to improve hand function okay. uh, because we can do therapies in the clinic or in uh, at home uh, by one therapist is limited if mm -hmm. we can use robotic devices we can increase the exercise time practice time yeah uh, and we can get better results because practice you know makes it better yeah uh, that's why we need a better i think robotic device for upper extremity absolutely yeah um, it should be cheap for sure <laughs> this is one of the most important days, problems yes yeah. it's high technology <laughs> um you know as we were talking i just uh thought that in the defense of the lower extremity community uh it's i think you know it's a good that there is a high pr uh, prevalence of uh, exoskeletons in there because i just thought you know um, as a therapist working on the hand is one thing it's it's a very small <laughs> it's a much smaller thing uh versus mm -hmm. you know uh working with someone going through the the gait pattern the walking yeah. that's requires a lot more uh, physical strength i think right yes. Um, this is going to be a random question, but you got to do some research. Well, you got to do a lot of uh, fibromyalgia research in Turkey. You obviously are doing a lot of, uh, neuro focused research over here in the U S any difference, um, in terms of how people approach research or doing research when it comes to different countries. Uh, completely different. Wow. Culture, cultures are different. Okay. So uh, <laughs> in US, uh, there are lots of grants that you can get. Mm -hmm. And this makes uh, easier to do research. Mm -hmm. uh, money in Turkey to do research is limited. And as a clinician, and academician. I was doing patient care. I was doing uh, medical student teaching. Mm -hmm. I had limited time also for research. Uh, this this is one of the other uh, differences between U.S. and Turkey. When I was working in Turkey, I, I had less time for research. Uh, in terms of uh, enrolling participants in research, this is also completely different. Uh, it's more challenging in Turkey to convince people uh, yeah. to enroll in research studies. Do you think that's a cultural? This is a cultural okay. thing. And also uh, here in US, uh, there are lots of research ongoing. Mm -hmm. So the uh, population, the people know what research is, is and yeah there are lots yeah. of research yes. around and they see the outcomes of the research how they benefit mm -hmm. from research uh, this is limited i am not saying this is not completely oh, uh, not absolutely. there but this is yeah. limited in yeah. turkey yeah. Uh, so yeah there are really many differences this part is cultural yeah i see yeah science translation is a it's a big thing for me as well. And um, 
I it's it's great that you know public here in the U.S. is more aware um, of the uh, outcomes of certain research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I still feel like there's still a giant gap, right? <laughs> I mean, right now we're comparing uh, the U.S. to Turkey, but I I, I think even in the US the the translation needs to be bigger and um as a scientist yeah. i mean that's why i um i'm passionate about doing the podcast i want to get words about uh what we do and the cool things we do in uh in the fields um because yeah w- once it's in the hands of media especially right it's like uh eat a chocolate every uh day and that will help you um stay healthy until you're 100 or something like that this is not uh, and most of the time it has nothing to do with the research article that they link it to (laughs) so i find it really funny but yeah i think it's definitely definitely on us as researchers to try to communicate um our findings not just to the research community in the most rigid terms of our fields you know uh, with all of the abbreviations and fancy words that we throw in there, but um, do it in simpler terms and get it out of there. That's yeah. That's why I, I like seeing uh, your results a lot. There are videos out there. Uh, there's uh, local news stations that uh, get mm-hmm. to do some um, some episodes on that, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. That was fun. I finally got to learn uh, about spinal stimulation and. Upper limb. Thank you very much. Yes. I'm really happy <laughs> to talk with you as well. Thank you awesome. so much for Best having me. Best of luck me. with uh, the future research. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. This episode was powered by CREATE, the Center for Research and Education on Accessible Technology and Experiences at the University of Washington, and RESNA, the Rehabilitation Engineering and Assistive Technology Society of North America. As usual, thanks for making it all the way to the end of this episode of Gears of Progress. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, We will see you soon in two weeks. Stay tuned.